from the latest on Caribbean cruises to kosher safaris, pilgrimages to Jewish Eastern Europe and award-winning wines and international cuisine in sun-drenched Tel Aviv. Sit back and enjoy the trip with the travel edition of the Jerusalem Post podcast. Guten Morgen, David. Good morning, Mark. Is it morning? Actually, I don't even know what time of day it is. It's very cloudy, actually. Yes. We had a couple of really sunny days and, and now it's a cloudy day. Here's the weather forecast brought to you by the Jerusalem Post podcast travel edition. For those of you listening to this in about two months' time, <laughs> it will be lovely and sunny over Berlin. We live in Israel and there the weather is pretty predictable. Okay, there's a, there are rainy days, but you pretty much know when they're coming. Because even when they give you the weather forecast in Israel, they don't even tell you the temperature. They go, it's slightly warmer than average yeah. or it's colder than average. Yeah. That's the weather forecast. Hot. And obviously, we've been to places like Dubai, where it's crazy hot. But in Berlin, one of the conversations we've had is, oh, you're very lucky with the weather when you're here. You know, and, and as, as Brits originally, we're used to the, the Northern European, we're not quite sure what the weather's going to be. Do I need my raincoat? Should I bring yeah. an umbrella? Yeah. But it, it's been pleasant this weekend. It's warm, uh, which means that some of the things that we're going to be doing in this particular podcast are going to be just fine. Heaven help us. Yeah, yeah. More on that a little bit later on. As we said in our last Berlin podcast, we're going to try and do something sustainable while we're here. It's very important to the German National Tourist Office that we try and promote sustainable tourism. So just to remind you of the pledges we made, I pledge that for this trip, I'm only going to eat vegetarian food, no fish, no meat. And apparently... I'm only taking public transport, and that does not include taxes. And I'm not changing my clothes for the whole trip. (laughs) It's a good job it's only a short trip. Thankfully, we're not at the last day of the trip because David will be standing further away from me. So those of you who didn't hear our recent podcast on Berlin, and we suggest you go back into our archives to so do, uh, we looked much more at Jewish and Israeli Berlin. Today, we're looking at New Berlin. We will be going to a couple of new museums that one I think has recently opened. One in the last couple of years is very, very popular and gives you a feel for Berlin of days gone by. We're going to do something a little bit different and related to popular American culture. And as Mark likes to say, we'll be going a little bit, in fact a lot, out of our comfort zone. More on that in a few minutes. We want to draw your attention to a fabulous place that we have eaten at. It is called the Bon Vivant Cocktail Bistro. It is a vegetarian cocktail bistro in the Schöner district of Berlin. We had the, I think it was a four-course tasting menu with the accompanying cocktails. Mm -hmm. I would highly recommend this place. Absolutely. Great food, full of invention, impeccable service and attention to detail, which we really enjoyed. Have you got a quiz question, David? I may very possibly have. Would you like to share it? I would. Berlin's population, as far as I know, is about three and a half million folks. At least that's what we were told. Paris's is far larger. And yet, Berlin as a city is much, much, much bigger than Paris, which came as a surprise. So the question is, how many times larger is Berlin than Paris? Oh, that's a good one. one I don't even know. The, oh my gosh, something, something Mark I don't know. know. <laughs> the answer at the end of the pod, which we hope you will enjoy. This is the Jerusalem Post Podcast Travel Edition. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MarkDavidPod or mail us at MarkDavidPod at gmail.com. 
we go out. Absolutely. What have they got planned for us now? Well, nice quiet start to the day. Nice relax. I think it's a swimming pool. Terrific. And I found this on the internet and I said to them, let's go and do this. It's a spa with techno music. Mm -hmm. Um, Sadly, they couldn't take us, but they found us one that recreates the spirit of Bali. What's it called? Uh, Vabali. Okay. I'm going to take my Vabali body (laughs) and go sitting in a jacuzzi, have a swim, and then we can get on with the rest of the day. Is this the place that you're talking about on this piece of paper? Yes. Have you read it? No, no, let's go. Let's go. We'll we'll, we'll find out when we get there. Right, let's go for it. See you later. Mark. I'm sorry. (laughs) Mark, have you ever actually read something online before like all of it or do you just look at the first line and and that's it no i I did point out to you that when we went to the the one with the techno music Mm -hmm. just in the sauna Mm -hmm. it said you're gonna have to be naked so i thought fine we'll we'll not need clothes in the sauna i didn't read the small print on this one mark and i'm half sorry but i'm not completely sorry mark where it says textile free so i i thought you know Textile free, there's got to be some sort of green, sustainable plus to that. I which is something we're trying to do while we're here, is being yeah. good boys and girls. Yeah, I didn't quite get what that meant. We get to Vabali and a gentleman on reception says to us, I need to tell you the rules of the house. That again, it's textile free. We go into one of the beautiful changing rooms, there are lots of them, and we suddenly begin to understand what textile free actually means. The changing rooms were mixed. Yeah. No one's wearing anything here. (laughs) Anyway, the way it works is when you're in the sunbathing areas and so on, it's clothing optional. However, any of the wonderful pools, there's a large swimming pool, a plunge pool, a hot tub, and a variety of other things. Saunas, steam rooms, treatment rooms. You're in the all together. And we did it. Yes. Mark and David have been... Nude bathing, nude hot tubbing, and it was okay. Yeah, I, I was nervous when we went hot air ballooning, but, <laughs> I, but I got over that. I think with the anticipation, it's fine because I worry about it and I get it out of the way. I had no clue here what we were doing. It was fantastic. So I, I've not had a long time to think about this one. We communed with nature. It was great. It's Peaceful. A, it's a beautiful place. The water's so clean and pure. It was just a fabulous place to spend a couple of hours relaxing in the heart of the city, but yet without any of the sounds of outside to disturb. And I think it continued the theme of everything we've done in Berlin. I could have spent all day there. But unfortunately... Or fortunately. We have to move on to the next exciting adventure. David, where's my towel? Quickly. (laughs) You're listening to the Jerusalem Post podcast travel edition with Mark Gordon and David Harris. Onto the tram, off the tram, through the Brandenburg Gate, which is one of the iconic symbols of Berlin. We're not really going to focus on that. We've walked over to the Berlin Holocaust Memorial. It's confusing, to say the least. I'm not confused. I, I generally find a lot of abstract art, 
If you walk through a modern gallery and you see, for example, Campbell's soup tin that's been painted, I think, what's the point? Give me a gorgeous seascape, some paintings from the Renaissance period, I get it. When it comes to anything that's modern, anything that's abstract, it's something I don't compute. The memorial is supposed to challenge, it's supposed to make you ask questions. We're, I would say, in the middle of it, we're, there are pillars above our head. It starts in the corner at maybe one foot high. These pillars are 10, 12 foot high, and there are rows and rows taking a large city block all the way in the center of Berlin. It's prominent. You see it. People on the corner don't know what it is and they're sitting on it as benches, but it's... <laughs> I don't know what it's trying to say. Again, I, I would argue that a lot of modern art is like that, and I, and I would argue that in the case of something as tragic as the Holocaust, perhaps people need to be shown in a more direct manner, a memorial. So, for example, I know one of the things that you have found very emotional traveling around Europe outside various uh, railroad train stations are the uh, statues that are a memorial to the kinder transport. But there you really see what it is. There are statues of children holding suitcases ready to make the journey out of Germany and places around this area. And I think leaving people to ask questions they might not know what questions to ask and where to find the answers. I suppose my hope is that people look at this and go, what is it? And then it takes them to read what is the Holocaust, what happened. It gives them that question. It's certainly impressive, but it, it, it's very, it's very, see, I can't even think of the word to say what it is. So we're presenting to you in this particular podcast, The New Berlin, and this really is part of The New Berlin. This is something, of course, that sprouted after the wall came down, uh, and the wall was so close to where we are right now, just across from the Brandenburg Gate. And what I can say as somebody who is Jewish is a vote of thanks, um, as opposed to some other countries, to the Germans for making Holocaust memorial for making the history of the Jews uh, of their sojourn in this part of the world for 15, 16, 17 centuries so prominent in education, both formal education in the school system and also in the informal education such as in this city block. Mark, you're probably just about old enough to remember the 1980s. Were you a Knight Rider guy or a Baywatch guy? Baywatch. Well, here in Germany, the star of both of those shows, David Hasselhoff, is celebrated. In fact, arguably, has the highest cult status in both Germany and Austria. And for neither of those two TV shows. Shall we go and find out why? Yes. I've been told to put my microphone on this. I feel a bit like David Hasselhoff at the Berlin Wall in 1989. I don't know if people remember that, but we've come to 
his museum commemorating the effect of David Hasselhoff on Berlin. Uh, we're joined now by Jim, the owner of the Circus Hostel and Hotel that houses the David Hasselhoff Museum. Jim, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about this fabulous museum we're stood in? How can I explain it? Um, it's definitely one of the more unusual places to visit in Berlin. The people who visit us particularly find us. So there, there isn't people that just walk down the street and think, oh, there's the David Hasselhoff Museum, I'm going to pop in there and have a look. They already find us online. We didn't do it, but somebody made us a TripAdvisor page. I think we ranked of something like 250 out of 1,000 things to do in Berlin, which, considering where we're stood at the moment, is quite high, I would imagine. Uh, let me explain. We've come through the entrance to our stall. There are no signs that on the outside. Apparently, if you look up, you can see something small. And we've come down into... A cellar. There are pipes above our heads. We're in a narrow space. There's a couple of closed, heavy doors I assume that we're going to go into. But at the end of this corridor that we've walked down, there is a huge picture of the sexy David Hasselhoff that we all remember. And underneath it, it says the Hoff. So this is how it all started. Next door, we have a, a bar. And one of the guys working in the bar used to study in the art college here. And he made us a David Hasselhoff shrine. So we hung it up on the wall, and it was a long, long time ago before people even made selfies. It used to be the most photographed part of the circus hostel. We then renovated and we put in a microbrewery. And David Hasselhoff shrine didn't have a place there anymore. And because it was so popular, we couldn't throw it away. It ended up quite a long story. The reason it made such an impact in the bar is because people would ask, why have you got a picture of David Hasselhoff on the wall? And we would, with a completely straight face, say, because he brought down the wall. And then go off and do something else, pour a drink for somebody else. And they were left thinking, did he really bring down the wall? Or was it, is he just bullshitting me? Can I swear? Too late, you've done it, it'll be out there. <laughs> so it's just a gag. The whole thing's just a joke. But having said that, before we came in, we did a quick intro where we said, people generally who are listening to this know David Hasselhoff for two things, Baywatch and Knight Rider. But this is seriously about something else. Even though you're treating it in a lighthearted way, there is actually a serious story here. The comedy joke about David Hasselhoff, for the Americans in particular, back then is that he was a German housewife's favourite. So West German housewives used to listen to David Hasselhoff's records or CDs or whatever and think he was cool. When we were all watching Baywatch or Night Rider and we thought, oh, maybe cool, maybe not cool, he was producing music which touched a nerve with the West Germans particularly. What was interesting um, is he's done a phenomenal amount of music. Most of it is very interesting, to say the least. And if you ever get a moment to go on YouTube and type in David Hasselhoff music videos, you get some real classical YouTube business going on. There was one song, Looking for Freedom, which is iconic in Berlin. Which he sang on the New Year's Eve. Here we have a photo of David Hasselhoff doing his New Year's Eve concert. This is where it came iconic that he brought down the wall. Because he obviously didn't. What you're missing in the picture is that evening his jacket had a battery-powered lighting show on his jacket as well. I remember seeing the video. 
Important question. Has David Hasselhoff been to the David Hasselhoff Museum? Uh, David Hasselhoff has been twice. These signatures on the wall you can see here is he came in and he pulled out his pen and he went nuts for it. So the first time he came unannounced. So we, we knew he was in Berlin. I can't remember what he was doing. One of these guys from his production company or something like that, they came and had a quick look before to check it out and then... He just rolled in like a storm and uh, stayed for 20 minutes, made photos of everybody, signed everything, went behind our reception, answered the telephone for people calling. <laughs> and he's a really cool guy, you know, and he's much bigger than you think. Like, you know, he's a, he's a proper tall uh, fella. Like. Three, four inches of it is the hairdo, isn't it? Is there more to it than what we're looking at now? No. You did say it's disappointing. <laughs> I said you you should prepare yourself for a life-changing experience. <laughs> I didn't say whether that was going to be positive or negative. On this side here, we have the David Hasselhoff Strasse sign. So I know Facebook is not cool anymore, but many years ago, just also for a laugh, we decided we would set up a campaign to try and change the name of our street from Weinberg's Weg into David Hasselhoffstrasse. We have a campaign where you can go on Facebook and say, yes, we're into it. We also, just for a gag, uh, wrote to Angela Merkel, the chancellor, and various other people. Most of them actually wrote back saying, no. no. <laughs> Nine. Uh, one of them did write back, and I can't remember whether it came from uh, Angela Merkel's people or not, but apparently you can't have a street named after you in Germany if you're still alive. So you have to be dead. Before this picture arrived, did you know about him? It was, again, just watching the telly. I know as much as you did about David Hasselhoff. It all started with that shrine in the bar and us playing a joke on the guest saying he brought down the wall. The second time he came, he was uh, filming a film and it was, uh, I think it was just before Corona he was filming. So it hasn't come out yet. And he ran in with a life-size cardboard cutout of himself. <laughs> and one of these orange retons, uh, life-saving. Yeah, but the, the real ones, yeah. the big ones from the thing. And they filmed here for like five minutes and then they disappeared again after photos and signatures and whatnot. Jim, thank you so, so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. This is the Circus Hostel and Hotel on Weinbergsweg. You're listening to the Jerusalem Post podcast travel edition with Mark Gordon and David Harris. We are very lucky to be sitting in a Michelin-styled restaurant in Berlin called Prism with Jackie Lorenz, who is the sommelier and our host for this evening. Firstly, thank you very much for inviting us to Prism. If Mark sounds at all different from the rest of this podcast, it might be owing to the ample amounts of alcohol that Jackie has plied him with over the last four and a half amazing hours. I did have lots of questions. Most of them are like floating around in my head with the alcohol. Tell us a bit about Prism. What's the concept of the restaurant? Well, it's all Gal. It's, it's all Gal's brainchild. We are just, just here to, to make his vision come true. The idea behind it is basically to take flavors and ingredients that Gal grew up on while living in, in uh, Tel Aviv and translating them into a kind of a, a modern European fine dining language. For our listeners who don't know who Gal is, do you want to tell us who Gal is? Gal Ben Moshe, 
never know what to pronounce properly in that in that name, um, if the emphasis goes on the first or the last name. Dave. <laughs> It's, he is the head chef and owner of this restaurant. He, he lives here in Berlin, obviously, since almost 10 years, but is born and raised in Rishanitzion, Tel Aviv. He is not only the chef and behind the concept, you also spend about 23 hours a day with him. Yes, he is my husband. We uh, do the classical men cook behind the scenes, me, front of the house. I was apprehensive about coming here once you told me Gull was a Manchester United fan. David and I are obviously supporters of the greatest team in the world at the moment, Manchester City. Uh, but we've put that to one side. Tell us about the menu. What type of food does Prism serve? Well, uh, you had the spring menu, which is always our favourite of the year because all the all the fun stuff comes to Berlin. It's really due to the, as awful as it sounds, the high influx of Arabic refugees in 2015 that started bringing a lot of their yeah, own ingredients of the, of the Levantine region to, to Berlin. So we try to take these here exotic ingredients and bring them to a stage in, the, in Western Europe. How ready was Berlin for these types of foods. So as we were talking during the evening, you were saying that traditionally and the way that you grew up was on rather dull, lacking in flavor foodstuffs. The same way that I grew up in, in Manchester. It's northern, the soil isn't rich. How was it accepted here? Well, there was, a, there was before that already a large Levantine, often called Israeli cuisine area but no one did it in fine dining it was always street food level which i think does no justice to a region which at least historically is so rich in food culture to always boil it down to hummus and falafel when did the restaurant open and tell us about the process for getting a michelin star for this restaurant a lot of work nervous breakdown covid uh, november 2018 uh, which was too late for the 2019 Michelin star, basically, because testing ends in summer. So it was relatively nice because we knew we had one and a half years of scots-free, carefree serving customers. But we always saw us as a, as a Michelin star restaurant. We thought that's what we deserve. Why is it important? If people like your food, at the end of the day, you've got X number of tables, you can have X number of customers. As long as your tables are full, say you have a number of sittings a day, or as clearly we've been here for four or five hours enjoying your company and the various dishes, what difference do the accolades make? Probably by the books, there are enough statistics that, that technically once you have a star, your revenue is supposed to rise by 20%. But I think it's not that, and I think that's, that's the wrong way of looking at it. We don't have it for the customers, we have it for us. It's our drive, it's the one stamp of approval that still matters, because the Michelin star is still a black box, nobody knows, nobody can look in it. With the 50 best, you know who the judges are, you know who you need to invite, you know who the, you know, you can work the system a little bit. With Michelin, you can't. There are hundreds of writers out there, and probably 95% of them are fine writing a column for a weekly women's magazine and ending up at doctor's offices and stuff. And 
5% go into investigative journalism and, and dream of, of a Pulitzer Prize. Do they dream about the Pulitzer Prize because what it means to others? No, I think they want it because they have the drive and I think that's how I would see the Michelin star. You're the sommelier here. Tell us about where you go to source the wine. Well, unfortunately, I still am mostly right here. It's much less fun than you think it is. We have a little bit of a split personality there. We have quite an extensive wine list, which, which also, of course, covers Europe, because you do need to recognize the place that you're in. But I think what we're most proud of is that we give the wines of the, we call it Eastern Mediterranean, to take the politics out of it, because the second you call it countries or regions, it, you can offend one or the other is that Israel has made a lot of progress when it comes to winemaking. It's not all Merlot and Chardonnay anymore, but it doesn't translate into the German market. So we're putting a big effort of getting that. country that right now is most difficult is Lebanon. Again, a lot of smaller wineries starting, but logistics have just become such a nightmare when working with, with Lebanon that there's no actual way to get them here right now. The vegetarian fare that you serve is tremendous but you yourself prefer other things what's your favorite dish that you serve in this restaurant right now it would need to be the pigeon because i think it's everything gal wanted in a nutshell so we have a pigeon which was quoted in arabic nights there are pages and pages about feasts of sultans with a pigeon and a pomegranate and he does it with, with a baragat and green chickpeas and it's a very classical it, it can stand in any western european fine dining restaurant but it has these few points that make them deeply ethnic what next is it two michelin stars is it another restaurant in berlin what are you and gal planning next It's been two stars from the next day after we got the first one, which was quite funny because we always thought it ends at one, but the next day we woke up and looked, looked at each other and said, eh, let's go for two. Which I think is just a drive certain people have to move the carrots in front of your nose always a bit out of reach that keeps you going. And then I know Gal has deeply fallen in love in Dubai and with the idea of having, of having a restaurant there because it also I think it would mean so much would be so meaningful for an Israeli chef to open a restaurant in the UAE. And then obviously uh, the reason you're talking to me and not to him is that he right now, uh, he took over a restaurant in uh, Tel Aviv. Jackie, you've given us a lot of pleasure. We know that you give people pleasure on a daily basis. It's almost midnight. You've got kids as well as a restaurant to close up. You need to go and do it. Thank you for your hospitality. Thank you for talking to us. You're welcome. Berlin Fact File. You can fly to Berlin with United Airlines from Newark and North Atlantic Airways from JFK and Los Angeles. El Al and EasyJet fly to Berlin from Tel Aviv. There are great connections to Berlin with Air France through Paris, KLM in Amsterdam, British Airways from London Heathrow or Aer Lingus from Dublin. Berlin's public transportation is fantastic and that starts at the airport. We recommend the 39 euro Berlin Welcome Card. Ours was valid for 72 hours on all public transport, including the train from the airport and city trams, buses, trains and underground. We stayed at the delightful Romy by Amano. Of course, there are hundreds of hotels of all classes throughout the city alongside homes to rent. Hotel chains represented in the city include the Kempinski, 
Crown Plaza, Sheraton, Best Western, Hilton and Ritz-Carlton. The local currency in Berlin is the Euro and one Euro is worth around one dollar. Berlin enjoys a continental climate. That means cold winters with an average temperature of around freezing and moderately warm summers with daytime temperatures around 25 degrees Celsius, 77 degrees Fahrenheit. We ate at the delightful vegetarian cocktail bistro Bon Vivant and the Israeli-Palestinian-themed vegetarian restaurant Canaan. There are 23 Michelin-starred restaurants in Berlin. One of them is the Levant-themed prison owned by chef Gal Ben Moshe. Kosher eateries include Evgi, Boba Speiser Salon, Bleiberg's, Feinberg's and Hummus and Friends. Chabad also has a cafe which delivers around the city. We're in a place called the Humboldt Forum. It's brand new, it opened online during COVID and over the last months has opened its doors for the first time. It is a massive, massive space with 30,000 square meters of exhibits and places that you can study, learn, understand, hear concerts. But this is also the site of much of Berlin's history. The site is on Museum Island, uh, uh, an island created by two branches of the Spree River. It's not the only museum on the island, there are five or six other museums. It was essentially a swamp, and over the hundreds and hundreds of years of Berlin, this island has developed into a home for palaces and museums. Around 600 years ago, mm -hmm. in the 15th century, this was the Berlin Palace of mm -hmm. Friedrich I, and it survived for many years until World War II. It had been largely an abandoned area from the pictures that we saw, the black and white film and so on. There was lots of crumbling. I and mean, if, if you see any palace that has not been well maintained or any building, you'll see that there are cracks, there are crumbles, there was rubble out front. And so in the, the early 1950s, in the communist period, a decision was taken. Yes, the leader of the East German Communist Party, Ulbricht, decided that rather than have this Baroque palace standing, a symbol of the former republic, it would be dismantled over a period of four or five months and become a parade ground for the East German army, the East German Communist Party, kind of like Red Square. Mm -hmm. And then in 1976, his successor, Erich Honecker, decided that what they needed was a palace of the people, a palace of the republic, and a asbestos-filled monstrosity <laughs> <laughs> was started in 1972 and stayed open until 1990. And interestingly, because we've mentioned that this is a cultural place and a museum, when we were looking at images of videos of what actually happened in here, it wasn't that dissimilar in that there were concerts here, there were rock bands performing here. I mean, we saw some of the uh, names of people from the West who performed over in this part of the world. There was the James Last Orchestra, there was Kenny Ball, certainly people in Britain will be familiar with. As you walk through, parts of, of the history of this building have been brought into the new building, both the previous palace in 1950 when the building was destroyed, a number of the statues and a number of the parts of the building were kept and 
put in museums elsewhere in East mm-hmm. Germany and have now been reintegrated back in the building. But at the same time, the Italian architect Franco Strella has built a modern facade to the Humboldt Forum, both on the outside by the River Spree, but also on internal walls within the building. So we're in the rear courtyard, which on three sides is a brick-for-brick, stone-for-stone recreation of the original palace. And on the fourth side here is modern urban facade. We've been here for sadly just an hour and managed to walk around a small portion of the museum without actually entering any of the museums that are held inside the the Sculpture Palace, the Berlin Museum, there's the Humboldt Labs, there are eight or nine Mm -hmm. permanent exhibitions as well as temporary exhibitions and more exhibitions opening up this September. If you do come to Berlin, Museum Island is highly recommended even if you're just going to wander around the outside of the building, but entry will be free. In addition to seeing this building, the cathedral next door and the other museums, there's a lovely view of the river and from just across the bridge, you can take a river cruise up and down the Spree. This is Mark Gordon from the Jerusalem Post podcast travel edition. Find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at MarkDavidPod or mail us at MarkDavidPod at gmail.com. In order to understand a little or rather a lot about the, the communist period in this part of the world, we've come to a museum which is called DDR, which is all about what was the... German Democratic Republic. Mark, we grew up in an age where this was a divided country. What do you remember? What are your thoughts from that time? My one main memory as a child growing up about East Germany was the blue athletic vests of their... I mean, they were number one in athletics. There was a runner called Marita Koch or something who ran the 400 metres. I never saw her get beaten. We now know that there were reasons she never got beat, but yeah, that's my one endearing memory of the DDR. It's funny you should say that because I was going to go straight to sport as well. The East German football team, soccer, and obviously in track and field where they excelled not just on the track but also in the field, as did the other communist uh, countries at the time. As we go around this museum, which we're going to do over the next few minutes, what are you? expecting i mean not so much from this museum but what bits of the story are you interested in as it were i'm expecting to see a lot of concrete you know my visions of berlin so far and old east germany was ugly concrete architecture i know a tiny bit about the museum and and it's supposed to give you that feel of what life was like in east germany so having spoken to people that lived in the former east germany it's a feeling of being watched of oppression of control people here weren't free I think a lot of the imagery that we're familiar with obviously is the wall and also probably for older listeners is watching people trying to escape and sometimes with tragic consequences. But I think what I'd like to find out is what life was like in someone's home. What sort of food did they have? What vehicles did they drive if they could afford to drive a vehicle? So we're going to wander around and you'll join us on our journey. Mr. 
Diskussion über die Bedeutung eines Vertrages zum Verbot der Anwendung chemischer Waffen, ihrer Entwicklung, Produktion und Lagerung. We've walked through the museum. It's fairly compact, but there is so much to see in such a small space. We are in a typical East German living room. I'm guessing, where would you say, 1970s, 1980s? It's actually very difficult to date it because there's this vision that East Germany was behind, but everything here is pre-1990. If you're younger than 35, the whole exhibition is historical. I'd say it's 80s. It's kind of familiar to my childhood. It's very Formica, colour TV, but definitely an old set, a rotary telephone. What I did notice over there is the drinks cabinet where there's some very nice East German Cabernet circa 1980. You were talking quite a bit about food, which you often do, but in this case, sort of comparing the offerings here to what you and I grew up with. We discussed this when we were out in a Michelin-starred restaurant. My guess is that the East German food of the 70s and 80s was not quite up to that standard, but one of the visions of food in like Northern Europe, is potato and cabbage. So there is a mock-up here of a shop from East Germany trying to recreate the queues and the lack of food. And there are some tins of very, very odd-looking herrings and mackerel. Only odd because we don't have that. But the picture of the counter contained potatoes and cabbage to give that impression of poverty. And I, I'm not sure that that is the truth. They've got a... Trabant vehicle, which was the domestically made motor car, not very impressive looking. They look at fair dodging uh, that went on pretty rampantly from 1966 uh, across all of eastern Berlin. What I do like behind us in the living room is a window which is a computer animation of what it would look like to look out of your window in an East German block and you see lots and lots of other tower blocks. There's rain, there's a picture of the TV tower in the background and then you can see the little Trabants coming around the corner and parking into their allocated spaces. One of the comments that we've both made when we've not been recording is the famous expression that it's the victors who, who write the history. And it's very interesting to come into a place like this, which is from such recent history. Mark and I are, are middle-aged, we're not particularly old, but we can f remember fairly clearly the period that communism was the order of the day in Eastern Europe. And yet here we are. It's largely gone. We're not going to get political about what's happening right now, but largely disappeared. Most Eastern European countries have embraced Western values. It's interesting to consider whether we are seeing what really it was like or, or what people in the West would like to think it was like. Well, I'm quite enjoying sitting here or sat here, as Dave would like to have me say. Some of the small children looking in wonder at typewriters, at the square television, at the cassette players, and just sitting there thinking, wow, what is that? I'm waiting to find a fax machine, which is still in operation in Israel, but not in many other places. I am not looking in wonder at all at the next thing that we're going to do. You're listening to the Jerusalem Post podcast travel edition with Mark Gordon and David Harris. David, look up. Okay. Keep looking up. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> no way. Way. But I've got some good news. Uh, We're not going all the way to the top. 
please don't make me go all and, the way unless to you the want top. to change channels on the Berlin TV tower. Oh my god, please don't let me go. How high is it? It's about three hundred meters. <laughs> what's that in? What's that in feet? It's about a thousand feet. Oh my god, we're not doing that. But that, but that's to the tippy tippy tip, right? Yes. But I can see like two thirds of the way up. There's a big globe thing. That's where we're going. You see that glass no. middle? No. Yes. No. Yes. Oh god. What right now? Well, do you need time to prep yourself? Yes, please. Okay. So luckily, at the bottom of the Berlin Fernschatz at the TV tower, I'm not going to try that in Germany, sorry. Is it Fernschatzturm? Probably not. Fernschatzturm. At the bottom of the Berlin TV tower, there is a VR experience of Berlin's history. Virtual reality? That's the one. Cool. You get to put on some silly glasses and some headphones and sit in a corner and watch the history of Berlin. Shall we do that first then? Yeah, it'll give you 10 minutes to like pray. Let's have a quick listen. Welcome to your virtual reality experience, Berlin's Odyssey. To start your adventure, turn your head and look around you. Get ready, your journey through time starts now. Here we are in exactly the same spot, but in 1237. Imagine, 2,000 inhabitants live here, and this village shows no sign of being a large capital. Mark, yeah. we're on ground level. Well, we're one floor up. Yes. In 40 seconds' time, how far up will we be? 207 About. meters. Ah, the gentle behind seems to know. 207 meters. 200, how much is that in feet? It's actually 208 meters, but I don't want to clear uh, it. How long is that in feet? Times it by 3, point three. So we're going high? Uh, yes, about 800 feet. Actually, above you, thankfully there's no glass to look down, but there is glass go- going up. Oh dear. <laughs> we're in, you may have seen pictures of the, te- the television tower in Berlin. And we're heading up to the observation deck. Luckily, we're almost at the top. We're at 180, 184. My ears just popped. We're going at three meters per second. Mark's been more brave than I in recent times and has conquered his fears of heights. I'm still not quite there. So we'll see how, uh, how this happens. This is cool. I actually think we're on the lower observation deck. Because if you look there, there are stairs. So if you wanted that extra four meters of height... <laughs> Maybe that's where the restaurant is. There, there is a restaurant here. Now, we're not revolving. Thankfully, no. Or if we are, we're revolving so slowly that... It's imperceptible. What can we see from up here? The Spree. And there are some shops next to it called the Shopping Spree. Oh, dearie me. You've been practicing that line all day. There's also the cathedral. There is down there the Humboldt Forum that we were talking from just a few minutes ago. It's a big beast, isn't it? It really is. If you remember at the start of the podcast, the quiz question is the, about the size of Berlin. Obviously, it's a little bit of a cheat because you're not just looking at where the houses are, but where the borders are drawn. But from up here, we can see way out into the hills that must be tens of miles away. I don't want to overguess where we are, but if you look here, there's the, the Spree. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in Ale- or near Alexanderplatz, which was a... Central shopping square within East Germany. And it's also the main intersection for public transport throughout the city. But if you notice on this side of the river, as you look left, the buildings are a lot more Eastern European in their style. Oh, look, David, and a window with an outside set of stairs. Shall we? (laughs) No, thank you. 
one of the things that we noticed as we were flying into Germany and that we can see on the horizon here are wind turbines. Again, Germany, uh, a major player in the European Union, is thoroughly committed to improving their environment, to finding sustainable sources of electricity. If you stand here, it actually tells you what degree you're facing. So we're now facing 78 degrees east and it tells you what you can see in line. And this way, you can see the new Jewish cemetery built in 1880. Do you see it? It's over 100 acres in size and is the largest surviving Jewish cemetery in Europe. And I can't see it now. Okay, we're now at 40 degrees looking northeast. From here you can see the Reichstrasse synagogue built in 1903 and because it's hiding behind a block of flats somehow on Kristallnacht it was missed. There is a Jewish school next door. It is currently the largest synagogue in Germany and was reopened in 1953. Many of the streets here are beautifully laid out are super straight and so from this vantage point it's possible to see all sorts of things and what's probably a mile away from here is a golden dome with a star of David on it which is the new synagogue that Mark and I visited a short while ago. We are now at 312 degrees facing northwest from here I can see the central station and the Romy Hotel and I can see the receptionist at the Romy Hotel waving, saying, David, you've left something in your room. We're now looking in the direction of two of the uh, most important symbols of Germany in the 20th century and into the 21st century in the case of the Reichstag, which is the home of the German parliament. It wasn't used, of course, during the separation between the two Germanys, but in 1999, once again, it became the official seat of the German parliament. And it's a classical building, but topped with a tremendous dome, which can be seen from many parts of the city. Additionally, in this direction, and so far I haven't seen it, is the Olympic Stadium. Can you make it out? It's just at the back of the park. That's where the Olympic Stadium is, obviously where Jesse Owens made such a statement. In 1936? Yes. Not only does the tower include an observation deck, it also includes a restaurant, and that is where we're headed now. Mark, I've often wondered how revolving restaurants worked, and whenever I've looked up at TV towers, I've never seen the whole thing moving round. And this is the first time I've actually been in one because, as you know, I'm scared to come up. Can you explain how it works? Well, I always thought the whole floor moved yeah, as well. Yeah. So what's happening is there's an outer ring to this restaurant and it's revolving. And then there's an inner ring that's there. Where the staff work. Yes. So we're actually moving past the dessert area at the moment. Yes. So in about an hour, when we come back again, we can order dessert. So one of Mark's ideas was on the outer side where the glass is, there is a fixed panel. So Mark thought maybe he'd put his phone down there and see if it would still be there in an hour when we get back to the same place. I was told Berlin was a very honest city, so you can feel <laughs> safe leaving things there. We are at the end of our trip to Berlin. It's been a fantastic time. Let's do the thank yous. Firstly, thank you to Katerina, to Joyce and to Alexandra from Visit Berlin for putting together such an amazing schedule. 
Goldie, thank you so much for getting us here, hopefully getting us home. Goldie is the representative of the tourism wing of the German government in Israel. A big thank you to the Romy by Amano Hotel again for hosting us. Of course, our thanks go to all the folk at Prism, the restaurant. At Vabali, the spa. Thank you for, well, nothing. Yes, no textiles. Absolutely. But they did give me a towel. <laughs> didn't need to be a big one, thankfully. <laughs> it was great. Thank you to the lovely people at the Humboldt Forum, the DDR Museum. And thank you to all of you for listening. But before we go, we've got our usual messages and, and requests. If you've enjoyed this podcast or any of our other podcasts, subscribe. If you've not heard all of our other podcasts, I recommend going back to one or even episode two or three or four, all the way up to 30-something. There's enough to keep you going on a good commute for a month or so. Subscribe. Mail us if you've got any requests, if you want to offer polite comments. Our email is markdavidpod at gmail.com. And that's also our social media handle. Do they still call them handles? I don't know if they ever did. I have no idea. Is it time for the answers to the quiz question? It absolutely is. And, and what better place to do this from? So the question that we asked way back at the start of this podcast was, the population of Berlin is only, as far as we know, around three and a half million which is way, way smaller than the population of Paris, but Berlin is much, much larger than Paris. How many times larger? The answer? Do you want to have a guess? Five. Was that the Titanic? We, oh, don't start that again. The answer is nine times larger than Paris, which is phenomenal, but I'm assuming it includes the region, the hills that we can see around and so on. If you look at the tear garden over there, that seems to take up probably more than the center of Paris. <laughs> it's been an amazing trip. Once again, thanks to everybody. Thank you for joining us. And we hope you'll join us the next time on the Jerusalem Post podcast, Travel Edition. Auf Wiedersehen. Goodbye from me too.